forgot to tell you to keep your finger there in Psalm 103, because we're going to be looking at Psalm 104 for the time in the Word today. So make your way back there to Psalm 104. Well, I've titled this message, In Praise of Our Great God, In Praise of Our Great God. Like Psalm 103, Psalm 104 is a psalm of praise. Psalm 103 praises God because of the the display of His greatness in salvation. And Psalm 104 praises God for His greatness as displayed in creation. So if you're there at Psalm 104, follow along as I read verses 1 to 35. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak. Stretching out the heaven like a tent curtain, he lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. He makes the winds his messengers, flaming fire his ministers. He established the earth upon its foundation so that it will not totter forever and ever. You covered it with a deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they hurried away. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place which you established for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass over, so that they will not return to cover the earth. He sends forth springs in the valleys. They flow between the mountains. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They lift up their voices among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of his works." He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man, so that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine which makes man's heart glad, so that he may make his face glisten with oil, and food which sustains man's heart. The trees of the Lord drink their fill, the cedars of Lebanon which he planted, where the birds build their nests, and the stork whose home is the fir trees." The high mountains are for the wild goats. The cliffs are, for, are a refuge for the Shephanim, which are like a, a rock badger. He made the moon for the seasons. The sun knows its place of its setting. You appoint darkness and it becomes night, in which all the beasts of the forest prowl about. The young lions roar after their prey and seek their food from God. When the sun rises, they withdraw and lie down in their dens. Man goes forth to his work and to his labor until evening. O Lord, how many are your works! In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. There is the sea, great and broad, in which are swarms without number, animals both small and great. There the ships move along in Leviathan, which you have formed to sport in it. They all wait for you to give them their food in due season. You give to them, they gather it up. You open your hand, they are satisfied with good. You hide your face, they are dismayed. You take away their spirit, they expire and return to their dust. You send forth your spirit, they are created, 
and you renew the face of the ground. Let the glory of the Lord endure forever. Let the Lord be glad in His works. He looks at the earth and it trembles. He touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. Let my meditation be pleasing to Him. As for me, I shall be glad in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. As one of the elders of Hope Bible Church, one of the questions that's constantly on my mind is, what does our church need at this time? What medicine do we need to salve our bruised spirits? What spiritual supplements do we need to strengthen our souls? Obviously, every word of God is inspired and all of it is worthy to be preached, but what do we need right now? I confess to you that in the last couple of weeks, as I was pondering what to preach this morning, I was struggling with that. What do we need now when we are in the situation that we're in as a church? This is the sixth Sunday since our pastor went to heaven. For some, the grieving has begun to subside as we take one step and put in front of the other, moving forward and fulfilling God's calling on us individually and collectively as a church. For others, the grief is actually getting more difficult because every Sunday, if not every day, is a fresh reminder that Pastor Leek is not here. And he's not coming back. He's not going to preach another sermon from this pulpit. He's no longer the pastor of our church. In fact, someday another man is going to come and have that title of senior pastor. And no matter how godly and no matter how gifted that man is, he's not going to be Pastor Leek, the man whom we loved and who shepherded us in this church for 24 years. As we grieve with those who grieve, we have to remember the different levels of grieving, that each one of us is in a different place as we process that loss. But as well, many of you have your own suffering in your own life, your own challenges, your own difficulties. Some of you have difficulties at work that weigh on your soul. Some of you have difficulties at home that, that are burdensome to you, whether in your marriage or with your children. Some of you have physical difficulties. We are a suffering people. So what word from the Lord do we need to hear? Well, obviously you know where I landed, but let me explain why I believe this text is necessary for every one of us, no matter what kind of suffering you're experiencing today. And frankly, some of you aren't experiencing suffering. The Lord has blessed you in a season of joy. Why do we all need this text? Well, I thought about sufferers in Scripture and how God ministered to them and what greater sufferer is there apart from the Lord Jesus Christ than Job himself. If you're familiar with the book of Job, he lost all of his possessions. Uh, He lost his ten children. Uh, Even though his wife was alive, she was not a help to him. She encouraged him to curse God and die. 
So he was a man who lost everything and had no encouragement in his life, no comfort. Even his friends, as he went in circles arguing with them about why God was doing what, what he was doing, his friends were no comfort to him. Well, while Job was still sitting on that ash heap, while he was still grieving the loss of his ten children, while he was still feeling the effects of the boils on his skin, the Lord came to him and spoke to him in a whirlwind. And instead of explaining to Job what he was up to, instead of defending himself and the sovereign choices he he had made, he instead gave Job a reminder of who he is, that he's the creator and that he's the sustainer. And the ways of his works, the way that he deals with his creation are inscrutable. We can't figure them out. The choices that he makes are beyond our understanding. And this was enough for Job to come to the end of hearing what God said and realize, who am I to question? And he praised the Lord. Psalm 104, in an abbreviated way compared to those four chapters in Job, enables us to ponder and praise this great God. No matter what questions we have of the past or uncertainty we have of the future, we need a fresh reminder of who God is. If He does the things that this text tells us He does, then we can trust Him. And in fact, we can praise Him. Look again at the first line there, verse 1. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And then look at the end of verse 35. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. This psalm begins and ends with a command to praise and bless the Lord. And everything between those two commands are the motivation that we have to do it. Again, many of you are grieving right now and you find it difficult to praise the Lord. Some of you have been looking for work for months and it's hard to praise the Lord. Others of you have conflict in the home And it feels unnatural to praise the Lord. Some of you have such severe physical trials that the last thing you feel like doing is praising the Lord. Well, no matter what your circumstances are today or what they will be tomorrow or in times to come, this psalm is a reminder to us that the Lord is worthy to be praised at all times and for as long as there is life in us. And so by the end of our time this morning, my prayer is that you will be so full of the greatness of God that you will be empowered to praise the Lord. Notice again there in verse 1 that unlike some psalms, this psalm is not written to the nation of Israel or to other people directing them to praise God. Unlike other psalms, this psalm is not directed at God Himself as an expression of praise. Unlike other psalms, that are written really just as a generic psalm for someone to come along and pick up and sing, this psalm is written to the author himself. He commands his own soul 
to praise the Lord. This is likely written by David because of its clear connections with Psalm 103, which tells us it's written by David. And David commands us and himself to sing to his own soul because he, like us, does not naturally praise the Lord. Left to ourselves, we would complain to the Lord. So he commands his soul, and he urges us to command our soul to bless the Lord. To bless God, as we see he says there, is to speak well of him. To to bless God is to attribute good to him. It's to proclaim the, the majesty and the glory and the goodness and the power of God. In blessing, we don't bestow or add anything to God that, that He doesn't already have. We are simply agreeing with and exulting in and worshiping God because of who He is and what He's done. And that's what David commands his own soul to do, and that's what we must command our souls to do. One of the reasons you and I struggle to praise the Lord is because we do far more listening to ourselves than talking to ourselves. And in listening to ourselves, to the, the words that rise up in our minds and in our flesh, our natural thoughts tend to be filled with discontentment, complaint, confusion, even anger. We dwell on things that are on the earth and not on things in heaven. Instead of looking to Christ for comfort, we wallow in our sorrow. We focus on the trials of life and not what is eternal and what God intends to use these trials for, that is to glorify Him as we grow in the image of Christ. And so rather than listening to ourselves, we have to talk to ourselves. We have to say, soul, praise the Lord. Soul, bless the Lord. But how do we do that? <laughs> what does that look like? feels a little weird to say that, actually. Well, very simply, we can follow the example of others, and what we're going to do now is eavesdrop on a soul praising the Lord. And so as we do that, we're going to divide this psalm into two main sections. First, we're going to hear praise for God because He is the great creating King in verses 1 through 9. The great creating King in verses 1 through 9. And second, we're going to hear praise for God because He is the great sustaining Lord. The great sustaining Lord in verses 10 through 30. And then we'll consider the final five verses as part of our conclusion. If you've been around this church for very long, you might be wondering how on earth are we going to get through 35 verses in one sermon? Well, We're just going to put down that binocular that we might typically use, (laughs) and we're just going to get the panoramic view of God's creation and praise Him for what we see. So let's begin by considering the fact that God, the Lord, is a great creating King. Look again at the second line of verse 1. We read, O Lord, my God, You are very great. The soul blesses God by attributing to Him exceeding greatness. To say that God is great is to say that He is distinguished, that He is eminent and renowned. 
But to say that he is very great is to say that God is infinitely superior in character above all. That he is the most powerful, the most glorious, the most majestic, the most honorable, the most noble God over all. Three times in Scripture we read that God is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is greater in splendor and superiority and majesty and authority. There is no king like our king, and there is no Lord like our Lord. Consider what David says here about our king and think about how that compares to the kings of this world. What does our king wear? Ever thought about that? What does God, God's wardrobe look like? Look at the third line there in verse 1 and into verse 2. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak. The kings of men wear garments of wool and silk and cotton and whatever else. Their garments fade and rip and wear out. Our king does not wear moth food. He is arrayed with splendor and majesty, which speaks to his authority, his radiance, his honor, his dignity, and his beauty. He is eternally clothed in his unfading character of, holy, of holiness and glorious power. That holiness and power is put on display in Genesis 1 when he said, Let there be light. And there was light. God is the source of light. It emanates him from him more powerfully than rays from the sun. He is the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change, as we read in James. His brightness is what made Moses' face to glow, Paul to go blind, and John to fall at his feet like a dead man. Men may look upon a human king and prostrate themselves out of respect or fear, but no one can look upon the brightness of our king and live. He created light and he is clothed with it. Well, how else does our king compare? Human kings, we could say, live in palaces and mansions made of stone and brick. They take pride in their high ceilings, the the beautiful wallpaper, the ornate decorations, But our God dwells in a different kind of home. Look at second line of verse 2 and into verse 3. Stretching out the heaven like a tent curtain, he lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. Our God does not dwell in a house made with human hands. He made his own house when he stretched out the heavens like a tent. That word, a tent curtain, is the idea of a a tent that was stretched out in an ancient tent that would separate rooms for different purposes. This is what the Lord did in Genesis 1 when He said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. He made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. And we know that the material world that God created is not his dwelling place as such. He existed for, excuse me, eternity past without a material world, and so he doesn't need this world. In fact, 1 Timothy 6.16 tells us, the King of kings and Lord of lords who alone possesses immortality, 
dwells in unapproachable light. But Jesus said in Matthew 5 that heaven is God's throne and the earth is his footstool. So while he doesn't need the material world to have a place to live, he divided the material world into different places for different purposes. His throne is in the heavens and the earth is where he rests his feet, as it were. In verse 3 there, the soul praises God because he lays the support beams for his private palace suite in the heavens of the universe. His chambers are not enclosed with brick and decorated with cloth and paintings. No, our Lord's chambers are boundless and decorated with galaxies and stars and planets and nebula and black holes and quasars and red giants and shooting stars. In 1 Kings 8.27, Solomon prayed that the dedication of the temple, noting the irony of building God a house. He said, but will God dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. Unlike the kings of men who dwell in mansions and palaces that are far too big for them, but which can also be torn down and burned, our great creating king dwells in the heavens. How else can we compare our king? Well, don't the kings... And leaders of men take pride in their transportation. Uh, In ancient times, they would ride around in ornate chariots of gold and silver. And today, they go around in, in vehicles of metal and glass and iron, mostly to protect themselves from harm. What about our God? Look at the second part of verse 3. He makes the clouds His chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. When our king descends from his lofty chambers, he rides on the clouds of heaven. Scripture uses this metaphor to speak of God's judgment. In Isaiah, we read that he will come on the clouds to judge Egypt. As Jesus told his disciples what to expect at the end times, he said that after the tribulation period, Quote, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. At the end of the 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus gathered his disciples on the mountain and he was lifted up in front of them on the cloud. Remember that? Were you there? Well, there were angels there, remember, who showed up? And told these disciples, why are you looking up in the sky? This same Jesus who just went up uh, from you in the clouds, he will come in the same way. Our God does not depend on animals or buggies or cars or planes to get around and conduct his business. He commands the winds and the clouds to swiftly usher him around. Obviously, that poetic figurative language reminds us that creation is, is at the beck and call of its maker, which brings us to his servants. The kings of men employ only the wisest of people, so they think, sometimes we might disagree, but they also conscribe the lowest in society to do their bidding. The servants of men are prone to sickness and death, and even when they're healthy, they can fail in their task. 
So they're always being changed and replaced. But in verse 4, we see that the servants of God are not like that. It says, He makes the winds His messengers, flaming fire His ministers. The wind and fire may prevent earthly servants from performing their duty. They're always at work in service of our king. Because he created it all, our king has the ability to command all of the elements of nature and ensure that they do his bidding. He can rain fire from heaven to destroy a city. He can cause a whirlwind to to bring up Elijah into heaven. He can use the winds to push away clouds and bring a drought. He generates tornadoes and earthquakes to judge the people of the earth. Over and over again, we see throughout Scripture that God changes nature. He enforces His will through nature to judge mankind. Our king's servants are not limited by their developed skill or health or cognitive abilities. His servants are always at the ready always immediate in their, obedient, in their obedience and always successful in their mission. And they are that way because our king made them and he makes them perfectly suited to their purpose. Lastly, consider the immense power of our great king. We'll just take verses 5 to 9 all together here. We know that human kings exert powerful influence over large masses of humanity If they want to build a fortress or a dam or a tunnel, they can call thousands, if not tens of thousands of men to work for years with machines and tools to hew stone and dig in the ground and create tunnels. But compared to our king, their power looks like children playing in a sandbox. What can our king do? What kind of power does he have? Look at verse 5. He established the earth upon its foundation so that it will not totter forever and ever. You covered it with a deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place which you established for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass over so that they will not return to cover the earth. How did God do this? Well, it's with these simple words recorded in Genesis 1. God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear. And the moment those words fell off his lips, the mountains rose, the valleys sank, the waters separated, and the world of water became a world of land and sea. Not one person was hired. There were no planners. There were no engineers. There were no laborers. Our king gave the command and the entire earth was formed. I mean, think about this. Do you know anyone or have you ever heard of anyone who can speak a word and inanimate objects just start moving? The most power a king has is the authority to tell others what he wants. Really, kings have influence, not power. Only our great creating king has true power. He alone is able to create and to destroy, to shape and to form. He alone has the ability to command the elements of nature and cause them to do what he wants. 
Friends, let there be no confusion about who our king is. There's no need for a reality show competition to see who is the king of kings. There's no need for a search committee to find who is the Lord of lords. Our king is the great creator who spoke everything into existence, who exerts his power over creation, who is clothed in light and splendor and majesty, who dwells in the heavens. He is the king, and he is worthy of eternal glory and infinite blessing and of our loudest shouts of praise. No matter where you are in life or what you are going through, May your soul praise and bless this great creating king. Secondly, I want you to see here that he is the great sustaining Lord. The great sustaining Lord. You see, he not only created all things, but he sustains all things. Hebrews 1 tells us that not only did he create everything with the word of his with a word, but he sustains all things by the word of his power. And verses 10 through 30 shows us five ways that our Lord sustains his creation. First, he provides water to satisfy the earth and every creature in it. Look at verses 10 to 13. He sends forth springs in the valleys. They flow between the mountains. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They lift up their voice among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of his works. Have you ever realized that 70% of the earth is covered with water? And all land animals and people and most birds can't drink it? In fact, only about 1% of the earth's water is drinkable to humans and land animals and, and birds. And yet, God created and sustains the earth and everything in it such that there is plenty of water to go around. Every year, millions of animals in Africa go from the uh, Serengeti Plains of Tanzania to the Maasai Mara National Forest in Kenya. They do that because they're smart enough to recognize that even though there's not water here where you are, there's water somewhere else. And so their maker provides for them. He's instilled this knowledge that we need to travel hundreds of miles to find water. He provides water for fields and forests and plants and animals. He quenches thirst and satisfies the needs of his creation. So he provides water to satisfy. Secondly, he provides food to enjoy. Look at verses 14 to 15. He provides food to enjoy. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man so that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine which makes man's heart glad so that he may make his face glisten with oil and food which sustains man's heart. The food God provides is not merely to sustain life, but for man to enjoy life. Animals eat to survive, but mankind eats to thrive, and God provides for them both. Aren't you glad that the Lord didn't save the livestock as it says here? Hey, here's the grass for you to eat. And then look at Adam and say, ah, you can have that too. No, he, he gave the grass to the livestock, and then he said to Noah at least, you can have the livestock. Not only that, he made an impressive and colorful array of fruits and vegetables 
with a variety of flavors augmented by oils and spices. There's an endless variety of rich and worship-producing food that God has created, is there not? I mean, even in this room alone, there's represented a variety of ethnic backgrounds where there's unique uh, palettes of flavor. No matter where you go in the world, there are different foods that God has caused to grow, causing cultures to have different palettes and different combinations of foods. Thanks to modern travel and commerce, we don't have to travel all around the world. We can enjoy most of it just by going to a particular restaurant. But the point is that the Lord not only fills our stomachs to keep us alive, He actually gives us food to enjoy, to rejoice in, and that causes us to praise Him. He not only provides water to satisfy and food to enjoy, but third, He provides housing for every creature. Housing for every creature. Look at verses 16 to 18. The trees of the Lord drink their fill, the cedars of Lebanon, which He planted, where the birds build their nests, and the stork, whose home is the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The cliffs are a refuge for the shephanim, which is a type of rock badger. Trees are home to an impressive number of creatures, everything from ants and bugs, snakes and chipmunks and monkeys and cicadas, When God created the mountains, he had an eye toward the mountain goats that he was planning to create. When he was forming the the rock cliffs and the hills, he had in mind the rock badgers and eagles that he was soon to create. He carved out caves and he thought of bears. For mankind, what has he done? Well, he's given us all the materials in the world and he's instilled in us as image bearers creativity to take what he's created so that we can either sleep under a a makeshift tent of branches or build mansions and homes. This reminds us of Jesus' words in Matthew 6, that when faced with an uncertain future, we ought never to be anxious, but rather to realize that if God takes care of the animal kingdom as he does, then he will take care of us. The fourth aspect of our sustaining Lord is how he fine-tunes creation such that each creature is given a shift to live and eat and work. He fine-tunes creation. In other words, God schedules his creation. Look at verses 19 to 23. He made the moon for the seasons. The sun knows the place of its setting. You appoint darkness and it becomes night in which all the beasts of the forest prowl about. The young lions roar after their prey and seek their food from God. When the sun rises, they withdraw and lie down in their dens. Man goes forth to his work and to his labor until evening. This takes us back again to Genesis 1 where God created the lights in the heavens to rule and separate the day from the night and to be signs for seasons and days and years. The sun and the moon are like shift managers in God's creation. They tell every creature when to wake and when to sleep, when to rise and kill and when to hibernate, when to go out and work in the field and when to rest and wait for the harvest. They tell animals when to grow an extra coat of fur and when to shed, when to mate and when to give birth. The sun and moon provide perfect timing so that all of creation can move in a cosmic dance. 
Imagine, if you can, the troubles that would arise if every creature on the planet was active and out and making noise all at the same time. Some beasts would lose their advantage while others would gain too much. Mankind would undoubtedly be overwhelmed by the cacophony and the chaos of the animal kingdom. But that's not the case because God has made his creation to work in a schedule with the sun and the moon. Finally, consider that our Lord sustains the universe by giving life and taking life. Giving life and taking life. Look at verses 24 to 30. O Lord, how many are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. There is the sea, great and broad, in which are swarms without number, animals both small and great. There the ships move along, and Leviathan, in which you have formed to sport in it. They all wait for you to give them their food in due season. You give to them, they gather it up. You open their hand, they are satisfied with good. You hide your face, they are dismayed. You take away their spirit, they expire and return to their dust. You send forth your spirit, they are created. You renew the face of the ground. You may have seen the 2020 census data that they've released thus far that there are now over 340, excuse me, 331 million people in the U.S. Were we to search out and create a census of every man, woman, child, bug, cicada, ant, animal, bird, fish, whale, crab, and lobster, and everything, lobster, everything else you can think of, we would not be able to count it all. There are almost 8 billion people on this planet, and exponentially more times animals and creatures known and unknown to man. And yet, not one creature lives or dies apart from our sustaining Lord giving life or taking it. Animals don't die of hunger because they can't find food, but because God has closed his hand. Neither do they feast on a carcass because they overpowered it, but rather because God opens Man and beast may have a part in, in procreation, but nothing comes to life unless the Lord breathes the breath of life into them. And we die only when the Lord takes away our spirit. The cycle of life and death, as tragic as it is, is a critical way that the Lord sustains the earth. If no man or animal died except uh, we all perpetually lived on the earth and, and continued to procreate, long ago the world would have been overrun and overcrowded and be unsustainable. As well, death is one of the ways that the Lord restrains evil in the world. He protects the oppressed by limiting the life of dictators. He protects nations by allowing them to slay the wicked. And just as he restrained the spread of evil by bringing the flood, so he restrains the wickedness of man by limiting the age of men. For us as believers, death can be a blessing because it limits the time that we suffer in this sin-cursed world. The Lord protects us from idolatrous tendencies by preventing us from following a particular leader too long. He limits our pride by causing our bodies to wither over time so we can't do what we once could. And ultimately, he restricts the number of our sin by limiting the length 
of our time in these sin-cursed bodies. That God gives and takes life is at the same time an act of mercy and grace, an act of righteous judgment, and an act of sustaining His Beloved, do you see that in all that God does, He is intimately involved in every aspect of His creation? There is not one molecule that moves apart from God's knowledge and power. There is not a mountain that explodes apart from God's command. There is not a child born apart from God's involvement. We not only worship and serve a God who created everything and just let it go. No, we worship a Lord who runs and sustains the universe. And it's He alone who is worthy to be praised and worshipped, not just when we feel like it, but every day and with every breath. And so we conclude with verses 31 to 35. Let the glory of the Lord endure forever. Let the Lord be glad in His works. He looks at the earth and it trembles. He touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. Let my meditation be pleasing to him. As for me, I shall be glad in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise. After all this focus on God's work in creation, let's not forget that God's glory is not tied to his creation. His glory glory will endure forever, even as this heaven and earth pass away. Though creation is marvelous in a billion different ways, it is passing away. But God's glory is intrinsic to His nature. It's not dependent on anything outside of Himself, and so it endures forever. So we could ask the question, why did God create? Why does God sustain life if it's all just going to pass away anyway? And I think the simple answer that's given to us is that he delights in it. He rejoices in his glory being put on display. He celebrates when his creation is seen and awed at. When we revel on a mountain at the vast beauty of his creation, it makes God glad. When we delight in simple things like the birds chirping in the morning, it gives God joy And so we, along with the psalmist, should sing to the Lord as long as we live. We should praise Him with every breath that we have. Whether you're 12 years old or 112, you can please Him by meditating on His works, by rejoicing in the Lord who is creator and sustainer, and by serving the King of kings and Lord of lords. After these words of gladness in verses 31 to 34, The psalm takes a sharp turn. Did you notice that in verse 35? Look at it again. He said, let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Why such ominous words at the end of a praise-filled song? Because what this psalm declares to us is that this God is worthy to be praised and worshiped. And the tragic reality is that there are those who not only don't praise this God, but they reject Him. They hate Him. And some even deny that He exists. 
According to Romans 1, everyone knows this great creating king and sustaining Lord exists, but many suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They force the thought out of their minds, and so needing some other explanation for what they see around them, they exchange the truth of God for a lie, and they worship and serve their creature rather than the Creator. Now, let's be clear, that's, this is not a us versus them situation. We are all, we were all in that camp. We were all born rejecting God and suppressing the truth, and it's only the grace of God that opened our eyes to His glory and majesty such that we believed in Him and now worship Him. And so I have to ask, is that true of you? Is there anyone in this room or in the overflow room who is still living as if God doesn't exist? Do you know that God exists and you know what He commands of you, your obedience and your worship, but you continue to live your own way? Do you think you can create your own version of reality and morality and escape the judgment of the King? My friend, I would urge you to open your eyes to the folly of that lifestyle You keep going down that path and you will only find destruction and condemnation. As if it wasn't enough that the king of the universe would create all things and sustain all things, this very king took off, as it were, his robes of light and stepped into his creation as a baby. He knew that we were all wicked that we were all under the wrath of God. And the only way for anyone to come out from under the wrath of God was for he himself to pay the penalty that we deserve. And so Jesus came. He lived the life that you and I could not live. He perfectly submitted to the Father. He lived his life praising the Father. And then he suffered He submitted himself to the wicked men who wanted to kill him. He died on a cross bearing the shame and the punishment that we deserve. Not just as a result of the soldiers killing him, but God who poured out his wrath on that cross. And then on the third day, he rose again victorious over sin and death. And now he offers life and freedom and forgiveness to anyone who would look to him for forgiveness and who would want to escape the wrath of God. Revelation 17, 14 says that the wicked will wage war against the Lamb, who is Jesus, and the Lamb will overcome them because He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And those who are with Him, that is those of us who have believed, those who are with Him are the called and the chosen and the faithful. My friend, don't be counted among the wicked who will be consumed by the wrath of Jesus Christ himself. Be counted among those who are the faithful, those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ and received his forgiveness. Well, with each passing day, each of us faces temptations to doubt, to fear, to sorrow, maybe even to distrust the Lord as we see the world around us. 
May this text, Psalm 104, and more importantly, this text's God come to your mind. And may you dwell on the greatness of the King who created you and who sustains you. The King who created every galaxy in the universe and yet knows the number of hairs on your head. May you meditate on the greatness of the Lord who rules the circling of the planets, and yet he provides for every need that you have. And may he, the king of glory, be to you as a rock so that you can weather any storm, endure any trial, and in the midst of it all, rise and praise the Lord. My friends, if the Lord can do all of these things, if he can create, if he can command the elements of nature, if he can sustain every creature on the planet, How much more can he care for you? How much more can he meet your needs? How much more can he care for your family? How much more can he care for our church? The Lord knows what he's doing, and we only have reasons to praise him. May we all say to our soul, Soul, bless the Lord. Soul, praise the Lord. In the darkness of the night, worship the Lord. In the morning, give glory to His name. When weeping and when laughing, may God. Our great King, time does not allow us to fully grasp immense power and glory written on these pages of Scripture. We need do little else than to look outside at the trees and the grass and the clouds and the birds and see your glory on display. As we are moving into the late spring and early summer, We see how your creation is continually sustained by your hand. And we confess, Lord, that at the very same time, sometimes we wonder if you're paying attention to us. Forgive us, Lord, when we forget who you are, when we forget your greatness, when we neglect to praise you. May your spirit Remind us of who so that you would be praised, that the worship of you would be on our lips, even in difficult In Christ's name.